0: V.S. Orbit, the podcast for OpenVSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 41. In mid-July, my family and I went to Clarny in Ireland for a vacation, and we took a side trip to Shannon, where I met with some of the folks at Intel who work on DPDK. I spent some time with folks I already knew from OpenVSwitch development, but I also managed to meet some new developers. This episode is an interview with two of the folks I met for the first time, who are Harry Van Heron and Dave Hunt from the main DPDK team. On to the interview. I'm here today with Harry Van Heren and Dave Hunt, and I'm at uh, Intel in Shannon, Ireland, and they're on the DPDK software engineering team at Intel, and today we're going to talk about DPDK. So my guess is that most of the people listening already have an idea of what uh, DPDK is, uh, but uh, before we uh, really get into it, well, uh, do you guys want to say anything more about yourselves? Uh, and then let's jump into what is DPDK?
1: Sure, my name is Harry van Haren, so as Ben mentioned, I'm a software developer on the DPDK team here in Ireland. I originally got into software development from a a Linux audio angle, so doing open source audio software, and it turns out that real-time audio software is actually quite similar to real-time network packet processing.
0: Uh Uh-oh, I'm here with someone who can tell me all the stuff I'm doing wrong.
1: No, you're doing it right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so that's my background on software engineering, and uh, I joined the team in 2015, so I have about two years here now. On the DPDK project and uh, learning lots. It's a, a really nice uh, team to be working on. There's a lot of technical challenges that are really, really, really interesting to try and solve. So, happily doing my job here.
2: And hi, my name is uh, Dave Hunt. Um, I'm a software engineer on the uh, the DPDK team here as well. Um, I suppose my history goes back goes back a good bit. Uh, mainly embedded embedded software engineering. A lot of single board computer work. And you might hear a bit about that later on. And, uh, you know, I've been working here um, as a permanent employee for the last two years uh, with the DBTK team, working mostly on optimizations and vectorization and that kind of stuff, which is really interesting stuff.
0: Well, uh, thanks for, for talking, me, uh, talking to me today. Um, uh, when I, I talked to uh, Mark Gray to uh, find somebody I could do a podcast recording with, I actually picked you guys out because I, I hadn't heard of you before. And that seemed like, like it made meant it was less likely it'd run into you sort of naturally. So it's a great opportunity to uh, uh, meet new people.
1: Thanks for having us. <laughs> so uh, I,
0: I guess the next thing is, for, for most people, they probably know something about DbDK, but I bet you know a lot more. Uh, do you want to give a, a little introduction?
1: Yeah, sure. So the DPDK or the Data Plane Development Kit is a, a set of software libraries and drivers for accelerating packet processing workloads on commercial off-the-shelf hardware platforms. That's the, the tagline. So I have my cheat sheet here in front of me to remind me of that exact tagline, but that is the tagline. Um, if we talk a little more generically, what what is it and what can you use it for? It's a, a set of libraries, so an API that you can program against, Uh, that does packet processing in user space. So uh, a lot of the hardware access would traditionally go through the kernel. And what DPDK will do is provide that same hardware access through user space for performance reasons. Um, DPDK itself then includes various drivers for specific hardware components. And as such, it will provide access to things like network cards and uh, optimized memory access. It provides infrastructure for things like accessing um your memory, using your caches very um, effectively. There's various subsystems as part of DPDK. So there's the ETH dev or Ethernet device uh, subsystem that allows your access to all of your networking uh, cards. There's some crypto dev uh, subsystem which will give you access to cryptography, uh, for example, the Intel Quick Assist. And there's event dev for scheduling devices. So uh, the DPDK is It can kind of be thought as a kit or a framework for developing high performance network packet processing uh, software, which then, yeah, you can use this library in order to get to market faster. There's a lot of community support. It runs on various architectures with various different platforms. It's very optimized code. And uh, the benefit of using DPDK is really that you get this as a starting point instead of having to write all this yourself if you're developing a piece of network packet processing software.
0: So why is it faster to get to a network card from user space than from the kernel? That, that's one of the things that if, if you haven't run into this before, maybe it's not obvious.
1: Sure. So um, there's a, a lot of tricks that DPDK has up its sleeve. And um, they're, they're kind of like, well, we'll get into them as the, the podcast goes on, I'm sure. In this particular instance, uh, there's a, a few main reasons main technical differences in how dpdk accesses the network card that gives it its performance so one of the very big ones is traditionally a network card would send an interrupt to the kernel to say that new packets would have arrived and um, in the case of dpdk we utilize a, a concept called a pole mode driver so pmd for short you'll see it in the dpdk documentation a lot uh, poll mode driver means that instead of waiting for an interrupt to arrive, the kernel handling this interrupt and then that interrupt causing a packet to, to be um, processed by the CPU, the CPU continuously polls the network device to ask it, is there any packets available? So that removes the overhead of an interrupt going through the kernel and it takes quite a lot of the like the overhead out of doing very high packet rates in particular. So that would be one of those. Now, there are multiple, so DPTK will process packets in burst instead of a single packet at a time. That amortizes the cost of any packet distro or any packet uh, processing. Instead of paying that cost per each packet, you pay it once for a burst of packets, and typically a burst of packets could be 32, 64 packets So the cost per packet to perform that operation is significantly reduced, leaving a lot more CPU um, cycles, I suppose, available to do useful processing. So uh, there's a a list of these. Um, Those are two of the very important ones. Apart from that, there are things like um, we avoid context switching inside DPDK because the context switching actually provides uh, or causes overhead and doing core pinning. uh, So that implies that we use one thread per CPU, uh, logical core or per core. Um, that, that avoids the, the requirement of doing context switching and hence your uh, TLB, so your table look buffer will be much more efficiently used. You don't trash that as much. And These optimizations actually kind of like work together in order to provide even higher levels of optimization than just optimizing one component a lot. So to the fact that we use PMDs and packet processing in bursts and we don't context switch and all of these other things mean that uh, the overhead in performing any packet processing workload with dpdk is very very minimal
2: that so, sounds great so when you when you you know you take you take one of those individually you will get packet increases or you will get throughput increases but when you add them all together you get you know phenomenal increases you're talking 10x you know so um, it's 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 a very efficient uh, methodology
0: it's it's easy to find uh one of the many presentations online where you compare the DPDK performance of some operation with the a performance of more traditional ways and and yeah that uh, DPDK bar on the graph is always much higher yeah So where did DPDK come from uh how uh how was this uh how did this come up
1: so DPDK has actually been around for quite a number of years at this stage. Um, somewhere around 2010, 2012, the initial release was done in the open source release with a BSD license. So then, in 2013, there was an open source community uh, based around the DPDK.org website. Um, the website there hosts a mailing list and a lot of infrastructure that um, kernel folks and OVS folks, I'm sure, are used to. So the the community kind of got involved, and uh, the community was built really. Um, so then, in 2014, there was a 1.7 1.7 release, which was the first release to be multi-vendor OS packaged, and really that was uh, a significant milestone. I think that uh, by,
0: by by which you mean that it was available from, say, uh, Red Hat and Debian and, and um, other uh, distributions.
1: Correct. Yes, not not all of them. I, I forget. There was one or two OS. Um, of our distros essentially that packaged it in particular I know since then a lot of other distros have also got on board so I think all of the ones you just mentioned actually have a package available either in a PPA or in some, some form to that yeah, I think Fedora
2: app. and FreeBSD were the first ones and then you know followed by you know Red Hat CentOS, and and um, a bunch of others have one too sure yeah.
0: it, it always feels like a, a milestone in a project when you start getting packaged
2: yeah, yeah. apt guess you know it's deep so deep much easier this. for users yeah yeah, you know? yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely, yes. So since then, uh, 2015 and till present, really, there's been a number of events hosted. So there's a DPDK Summit, which is a, a big grouping of people coming together once or twice a year in various locations around the, the globe uh, to discuss what DPDK offers to the industry and to discuss technical matters about DPDK. There's also an event called DPDK User Space. That's more focused on developers of DPDK itself, so people who would regularly interact with the mailing list and send patches to discuss future work as a community of people. Um, Then there's been other significant milestones like the 16.11 release has been tagged as a long-term support or an LTS release. And most recently, the DPDK project as a whole has transitioned to the Linux Foundation to ensure that uh, it's perceived as a, a vendor neutral and remains an open project without any particular vendors having more say than they should.
0: Yeah, uh, Open vSwitch uh, moved to the Linux Foundation I guess about a, a, a year ago now, and uh, we, we found that, uh, that that it helped a lot with perception uh, of uh, sort of independence, e- even though I, I think that Open Switch was independent before, it, it still had... Uh, it, it still helped convince people uh, by uh, moving to the Linux Foundation.
2: Yeah. And I think another important aspect of it is that it's cross-platform. I mean, it's not just IA, it's not just Intel. Um, I mean, we've ARM vendors, um, we've NXP, we've, you know, um, Tile, uh, PowerPC. Um, so that helped a lot when, when, we, when we released, um, you know, between, all the, between the community, I mean, by we, the community, um, had, had cross-platform for support. That encouraged a lot more um, companies to come on board and start coming out of the coming out of the woods or coming out of the you know with 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 new with new features and and new additions to the community to the to the software. Um, so now that it's cross-platform and that it's Linux um, Linux Foundation, uh, there's no barrier to anybody. Um, you know, just popping a patch onto the mailing list and and um, contributing to the to the project.
0: Do you have an idea of the the, the scale of the community in terms of? I, I don't know, developers or companies or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so so every release of DPDK, essentially, we have a Git log of the patches that came in. Uh, based on that, we can actually retrieve quite some statistics on things like who, which domains contributed, how many patches came in. So overall, an average release in the last couple of months would have had at least 100-plus individual contributors um, per release which is about three months at the moment in our release uh, cadence so we do four releases a year uh, we're talking about 800 to a thousand commits so there's a significant amount of commits being done that's generally um, a lot of those commits will be coming from 20-ish companies so there's a, a large body of different companies representing their own industry verticals actually committing to dpdk and improving the the project as a whole and then uh, we're talking uh, somewhere four releases a year. That's currently pegged at 1702, 1705, and 1708,
2: 1711. Yeah, it so follows that numbering system. You know, so the Ubuntu numbering system, we adopted that. Was it 1611? 1604. 1604, not that, that far, yeah. yeah. So it's easy to know when the next release is coming out. When you say it's going to be 1711, it's, you know, we're working on 1708 now, so that's due out next month. So you know, it's easy to follow when the, when the releases are due.
0: So when you're working on a a library, uh, one of the important things is who's using the library? Do you have have a a, a sort of a a mental list of these are the important projects that that leverage DPDK?
1: So I think traditionally DPDK came from a very uh, network packet uh, oriented background, so NIC, uh, NIC access, so network interface card, pulling packets directly from the NIC into the CPU. So I'd say almost all DPDK applications will use the ETH dev library for Ethernet device access, but then there's also core components of DPDK called the EAL, the environment abstraction layer and various other core components, such as the rings library to pass events from one core to another, the mempool library to access memory very efficiently, huge pages in order to make that memory access very uh, efficient from the CPU's perspective. So there's a, a, a core set of libraries that almost every application will use. And then for more um, yeah, application-specific requirements, there are a range of other libraries on offer. One example could be the reordering library. So if you want to do packet reordering, that would be the library to use. I don't think that, anyway, as a developer, I don't have a good um, indication as to how much each library individually is used. I think there has been a survey done and presented at UserSpace maybe a year ago, indicating how much uh, from a community survey um, that people could voluntarily fill in, uh, how many uh, of those projects would have used particular components in DPDK which would indicate general usage or rough approximate usage. Yeah, that's
2: hard information to find out. I mean, you you, you honestly, you know, if a customer is quiet about the fact that they're using particularly libraries, you know, the only way to find out is just change the ABI or change the API and then find out who complains, which is sometimes what happens, you know, that we we might ask on the mailing list, no response. We give the three-month warning for the change in the ABI Make the change another three months, the release is released. So there's that, there's that, there's those rules for making ABI and API changes that there's this kind of an agreed methodology um, to give people plenty of time. But you never know at the end of that six month cycle, somebody might come back and say, Hey guys, why'd you change this? This is breaking all our code. So. You know, we just refer them back to the fact that you know we've 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 had this you know API proce- API procedure.
0: So that that's actually super interesting to me because in Open vSwitch we have sort of something something similar. We we've, we've really had a a, a strong tradition of a, a strong tendency to try to keep things as backward compatible as possible. Sometimes it's hard. It, it seems like uh, DPDK is more willing to break backward compatibility. How how much pushback do you get on that?
1: So, so it's a very interesting point, and you're absolutely right that ABI breakage is bad, for from a consumer point of view. On the other hand, if we look at the DPDK project, and we have to keep its origins in mind, that it is very focused on performance. That the the root cause of DPDK being in existence is to be, provide ultimate performance. And if there seems to be an issue that a particular ABI is imposing a performance limit on DPDK, then I think that's actually one of the only reasons where the community will accept an ABI break. Just saying, hey guys, I don't like the name of that API is not going to fly. So the DPDK community as a whole is a very technical community and a very uh, merit-based technical community. So if you propose a patch to break ABI, there will be some questions asked Generally, if you don't already answer them in your cover letter saying, this is why I want to break the ABI, here are the performance reasons, this is the the justification I have for breaking this ABI. Even in that case, generally there will be a review and people will look, is it possible to do ABI versioning or symbol versioning to provide backwards compatibility? And sometimes that just is not the case. So, for example, if we change the MBUF, there's no hope that you can sim version mm. that it's it's the mbuff <laughs> yeah. so 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 we do try to keep abi backwards compatible that leads us on to actually providing an lts release as well because certain people required that abi stability for an extended period of time longer than one release or maybe even two or three releases and that, so so it is absolutely a priority of duplicate to try and be as Friendly to the consuming uh, projects as possible. At the same time, it's also a priority of DPDK to provide the highest performance possible. And if those two contradict, then we have to make a judgment call.
0: I see. So, really, since DPDK is focused on performance, if the reason you're breaking it is for performance, people are more or less willing to accept that.
1: I think so. Yeah. If there's a if there's a good technical justification for doing that, then then I think that for the DPDK project is the correct correct uh, choice to make.
2: I think in that case, you could probably differentiate between the cost, the end customers and, and the community. I mean, the community will accept it. The customers may, you know, the end users who are actually using it in their appliances uh, may say we were perfectly happy with the way it was. Well, I guess that, that, that can tend to limit them to older versions or an LTS version. They, they can't really stay on the, the bleeding edge of, of DPDK if, if, if um, they, they want long-term reliability or long-term ABI but it's something that we are looking at if at all possible we'll use symbol we're using symbol versioning more um, if it's possible to keep a backward compatible version of an API or an ABI then we'll do that um, it may require a lot more effort because you're trying to code two solutions in one and merge them together using symbol versioning whereas it may be just easier to add an extra parameter to a function and just go with that um, but we're trying. We're getting better. I mean, we're, we've much closer interaction because of the summits and because of the user space uh, conferences. Uh, we're getting a lot more feedback and the pain point is a lot of the time the pain point is ABI and API breakage. So we're trying to try to come up with smoother ways or better warning systems, uh, smoother ways of implementing the symbol versioning to, to reduce those pain points. But you know, as, as Harry said, we do focus a lot on performance and when, when it requires an API breakage and the community says, the only way we're going to get that is by breaking the API, well then it's going to get broken.
0: So uh, the long-term su- uh, support releases were uh, introduced as one way to uh, uh, to respond to this?
1: Mm. Correct, yes. I, I think that's one, that's fair to say. So um, the, the LTS would be brought in as a, a two-year uh, supported version. So 16.11 was the first release to be tagged as an LTS release, um, so any uh, critical bug fixes since 16, uh, so November of 16, uh, things are being backported to that release. Um, there's a, a stable a mailing list on dpk.org. And if we CC a patch to the stable mailing list, it will be considered for inclusion based on the amount of uh, effort to backport. If it's possible to backport, then it's backported if something like an ABI break is required in 16.11 to actually backport the fix of course it's not possible so then we look for workarounds we would look for other ways to solve the same problem if it exists in that same way in 16.11 and um, in the, the LTS version and if it's just not possible then our hands are tied and there's just no technical way of achieving the solution and that can happen I, I'm not aware of any case of that yet as far as I know everything has been successfully ported until now but I would have to double-check the mailing list before I say that as a 100% claim.
0: <laughs> so is is there a tension between adding features and maintaining or increasing performance?
1: No, I wouldn't think so. I, I'd see them going hand-in-hand. Hand. I'd see it as a, two things working together rather than two things opposing. Um, very much features and performance quite often go hand-in-hand. Hand. When we look at designing new features, we actually look at the performance of those features And we look at accelerating existing features based on that as well. So it's essentially, if you get a good idea, you're going to try and apply it across the board. And if possible, you're going to apply it everywhere. So I I wouldn't see there being a tension between those. they do. Yeah. There are. There can be disparities between them that sometimes you need to justify one and justify the other and make a judgment call. But yeah, in I mean, general,
2: that's a good point. I mean, I think uh, sometimes you'll find that um, you know by introducing a new feature. Obviously, if you're if you're burning more cycles, you know you're going to slow things down. But what a common thing we would try to do is find some way within that system of maybe within that software that we we uh, accelerate in other ways to gain back. You know, because it's fine if you say the performance is the same. We've added this extra functionality. P- performance is the same. Nobody really complains because you've got extra functionality with no no loss in. But if you say, well, you're losing five percent in your performance, then a lot of people are going to say, no, we don't want that or whatever. So you'll try and just cr- claw that back in other ways. Even if it's not directly related to that feature, as long if it's using that code path, we'll try and at least make the performance the same, or else find some way of disabling it in a config um, by compiling that feature out if you don't need it, and then you're back to your original performance. But there's always a careful, um, you're always trying to trying to make sure that we don't drop performance.
1: Yeah, so just a final note on the performance that um, in general, DPDK has a pretty strong tend to not between releases regress in performance. So that's, that's ultimately required if you're doing high performance libraries, people expect at least the same level of performance of course, preferably more, preferably lots more, but nevertheless, the maintaining your baseline is an is an essential part. Mm. Um, of course, based on particular details, one or two percent fluctuation is very very hard to determine. You need very good in, uh, infrastructure to actually test those things. That is something that the DPK as a community is actually working on at the moment as part of our transition to the Linux Foundation. There's been a talk of creating a, a lab, an open lab for people to donate hardware to to contribute hardware to run those tests, to perform regression testing and things like this in a a vendor neutral open place. And I think there is a university identified who were willing to actually host that lab. So there's progress being made in this area to try and really make it very, uh, a, a good workflow, I suppose, that if you're working on patches, Um, As, say, say an individual developer in the community doesn't have access to the various server platforms that he's meant to be doing his performance testing on. So that's where this lab comes in. And because the DPDK project as a whole is actually maintaining this lab, the community gets the the support it requires to do the performance testing. So that there's I see significant value there that as that it's more welcoming to individual contributors and maybe smaller companies who don't necessarily have a lab infrastructure in place to do the testing themselves.
2: Yeah I mean even just compilation testing across you know I I you know IA platforms and ARM platforms, you know you just need to make sure that all the config files compile and you know some basic sanity checking and not everybody has ARM servers and, and, and x86 servers in the same in the same house. Um, So it will be nice. I think that will be a great addition to the the community.
0: That's something that I think the OVS community will be watching because uh, we could also use some sort of common uh, performance testing infrastructure, and we haven't figured out how to do a good job of of setting that up. So uh, presumably, if you do a good job, uh, other projects at at Linux Foundation and elsewhere will try to use that as a model.
1: Yeah, I'd see significant value there. Of course, the, the fact that this lab, like the lab costs a significant amount of money, both in running and in initial costs to, to set up. And that's been enabled by the fact that the dpdk project moved to the Linux Foundation with a membership. So there's two levels of membership. There's a gold membership and a silver membership. And essentially, the money paid in by those companies is what's enabling this lab to, to actually happen. So, of course, there's a trade-off there in that it does require finances to actually run this lab. And that's just something to be aware of, I suppose.
2: Right. And
0: we, we have a, a different model in the uh, Open vSwitch uh, project at uh, Linux Foundation. We we don't really have a, a budget that, that comes from memberships. Uh, so if, if we wanted to do something like this, we'd have to figure out some way to fund it.
1: Correct. Yeah. So so um, I think in general, the, these kind of things are, are typically something that's, um, we'll say, teething pains of a project and trying to figure out the, the correct solution. Um, all in all, I do see significant value in it myself in, in such a lab, and I'm pretty happy that the DPDK project is going to get access to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's still in the setup phase right now, so I'm not aware of a login that people can actually start using it with, but uh, hopefully in the near future that will be shared with the community and members of the community to actually start utilizing the lab and... I don't have a timeline on that, I'm afraid, otherwise I'd mention. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to actually getting that in place as well for the community, I think. It's a great thing. So uh, one of the things I <clears throat> I see you have on the
0: uh, uh, the agenda here is packet distribution techniques. I don't actually know what you mean by that, so I, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, what what are packet distribution techniques?
2: Well, generally, um, packet distribution, I mean... When you have, it's getting rid of bottlenecks. It's spreading spreading packets across cores. So you have an RX core that takes in a a packet, a stream of packets, um, and you want to do work on all those packets. So how are you going to distribute those out to multiple cores? Because these days, um, we have up to, you know, twenty eight, thirty two cores on on a on a on a package, and we might have two or four of those packages in a system. So we want to be able to distribute those. Those uh, packets across as many cores as possible and get them back into uh, transmit core to get them out. So, um, ways of, ways of, uh, you know, efficiently distributing those because you know they share caches and we don't want to have cache thrashing. We don't want to have uh, conflicts in in the data as they're being pulled from core to core. Um, So we've got libraries um, in DPDK that we can um, send a stream of packets to one core in bursts, obviously. And then we calculate which workers we want to send those packets to, um, and we'll take care of things like vectorization, where we're you know handling multiple packets and single instructions. Like it, it could be handling up to eight packets in one instruction using vector instructions, um, or SIMD instructions, as they're known, and um, uh, send those off to to worker threads. And the worker threads will pick those up, taking care to align them with you know, um, cache lines so we're not, you know, so that multiple cores aren't uh, trying to access the same cache lines. And we just make sure it's as efficient and as, pos- uh, as um, fluid as possible to get those packets off to the other cores. Then we let those other cores do their work. And then the same thing coming back. We want to make sure that when we're putting them back into the core that's handling the transmit, that we get them back into that core's cache as, soon, as smooth as possible. Um, so this is as little as, you know, we don't want to be um, thrashing caches, like pulling cache lines from core to core and stuff. So we'll just try and make sure that we're, we're only touching it, we're touching those cache lines where, necess- where necessary, and that it only gets written out at the last minute when it's, when it's, uh, when, when, when it's necessary. Uh, so it's just a kind of taking a look at various techniques Um, Vector, looking at caches, looking at vector instructions to make sure that we're optimizing the flow in through a single core out to multiple cores and back to a single core again and back out the other end.
0: It sounds like a difficult a difficult problem in general. Is there a, like an overall technique that's used? Or are there many different ones
2: depending on the application? There's many, there's, there's many different, and it depends on what you want to do with it as well. I mean, Harry can talk about, you know, an inventive um, methodology in a minute, um, depending on whether you want to do. If you want to allow packets get out of order, th- there's various different libraries. Um, some of them uh, that we're working on at the moment um, that that guarantee order. So no matter how how many cores you spread those um, packets out to, that when they come back, they're always in order. There's other mechanisms that you might want to do less work per core and that they do happen to get out of order. So we, we keep the atomicity of the packets or of the flows. So when packets come back, that we have to reorder them back into the correct flow again. But that might suit a different workload. So it's very workload dependent on how much work you want to do whether the packets stay in order or not. Um, so there's, you know, three, four, five different techniques for distribution. And the, the packet distributor library uh, is is one of those techniques. And maybe, Harry, you yeah. could give, a, give an overview of, of, of the event dev.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I think in general, when we talk about packet distribution techniques, just to backtrack one step maybe, is that DPDK provides uh, infrastructure to the application to let it utilize all the cores on the system that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve when we talk about distributing packets across a a platform or a system. So as Dave mentioned, there's a variety of libraries in DPDK. The, The traditional one in use, I suppose, is the packet distributor library that does something called atomic flow scheduling. So atomic flows are scheduled to one core at a time. So when we refer to an atomic flow, what we really mean is a, a set of packets that belong to one connection. Imagine one TCP connection, uh, for example. Okay. So we would consider that one flow, and that flow cannot go out of order. We so,
0: we use the the, the jargon of micro flow in, in Open vSwitch for I think what is the same concept.
1: Okay, so so I'll try and uh, do a little well, macro now, here and define uh, now, micro
0: flow to be. Now that everyone understands, atomic. we we can uh, uh, we, we can yeah, use even either a, term. Even
2: even in that we can use flow ID or tag or hash, you know, that they're all the same thing. The and,
0: and, vocabulary network is horrible. Yes. No, nobody uses the same words for the same yeah, concept. Yeah,
2: yeah. Correct.
1: So, so the idea there is that we, we can provide the type of distribution that the application requires. A lot of applications utilize the microflow or atomic type of scheduling based on the fact that it allows a single flow or microflow to be utilized on a single core at a time, which means you can increment counters and things without using atomic operations. That provides significant benefit and ease of use to the application. So the packet distributor library in DPDK will perform that, and Dave has uh, quite some experience in optimizing that for very high performance. The event dev library, on the other hand, is a a more recent addition to DPDK. So it was proposed in 16, I think, uh, September timeframe at one of the DPDK summits, coincidentally, as I mentioned earlier. Um, That library enables scheduling of events. So we don't specifically talk about packets like we traditionally would in DPDK, but events, which can also be things like timer expiries or crypto completions or anything like this. And that event dev library provides a layer of scheduling to the uh, application, which it can configure. So we could say, I want atomic scheduling for this first step of scheduling. I'm going to give you those packets or those events back. And then I want you to do ordered scheduling afterwards. And the event dev library is quite powerful in that mechanism to provide stages of scheduling in a pipeline for that, that applications that would like to use the, the pipeline processing model. So that's kind of ultimately what the packet distribution techniques that DPDK, uh, yeah, understands or has libraries for. That's the ultimate goals. If we talk more in detail, um, so the event dev works just like the ETH dev with various pull mode drivers running underneath. And in this case, there's a, a software. Event dev library, uh, pull mode driver. So that's the one that I'm currently the maintainer of. And I'm working on essentially providing a software fallback for all types of scheduling. So we do atomic flow processing or micro flow processing. We do or reordering of packets and we do parallel scheduling. So allowing packets to go out of order. Then that, but that's for kind of a generic use case. For an application that wants to use that, if an application is aware, I very specifically only require the microflow or atomic type operation, but I need very high performance. Then it would be better looking at the packet distributor library mm. that Dave has experience in optimizing. Mm.
2: And it's something we can look at in the future is combining those. And there's there's other ones we're researching as well. Um, we could have the first stage talking to distributor library using an atomic flow really quickly through, and then you've then you could pass it on to an eventive style do and do more pipeline, more multi-stage pipeline work on that and then pass it on to another method. So, I mean, it, depends, it all depends on the workflow. If you've got a very complicated workflow, you might use multiple techniques in the same application. Yeah.
0: All right. So this whole time we've been talking I've been staring at these these little boxes uh, on the desk that have um, uh their they've got uh ethernet ports on the front uh they've got uh uh you know uh, power input and they say DPDK data plane development kit on the top. So what what am I looking at here? I'm I'm they they must be some kind of a uh, two port switch each of them. What what do we have yeah, here?
2: Yeah, they're they're a little pet project of of mine. Um, we we when I joined when I joined Intel, um, you know maybe a couple of years ago. I mean, I had been I had been you know very passionate about single board computers and maker projects, uh, for a long time. Um. So I kind of like to cross over my hobby with my job just to see if you can come up with anything interesting. It's always always interesting to cross embedded electronics with photography or something like that. Um, But I was trying to come up with some kind of uh, concept of what could I do with little single board computers um, with DPDK. Um, So I searched around for the smallest possible box that I could run DPDK on that had physical interfaces that were compatible with DPDK. And I found these... um, MinoBoard uh, Mino Max uh, single-board computers, um, uh, which had, again, a version. I, I found a plug-in card that you could use to give it two ports and so on. And that was the initial version of this, what we're looking at. But what we're looking at now is a, a later version of a MinoBoard, which is a new a new version of the MinoBoard, which has two Intel, I think they're I211 ports. So it's got two ports, which is enough for, um, say, used doing back-to-back traffic and um, back-to-back packet processing. And uh, so you could load up DPDK on a small box like this. The box measures, you know, to describe to the listeners, the box measures about four inches by four inches. Um, It's got two Ethernet ports, HDMI port. It's basically a mini computer. Uh, You can load up DPDK on it and uh, pass traffic uh, between the two ports. So it's ideal for training, education, If you want to bring it around and show, you know, uh, a bunch of students, um, you know, a physical box with DPDK running on it. Um, it's just a nice. It, it makes a nice change from running it locally on your laptop with software PMDs, um, or or trying to log into the cloud and run it off somewhere that you don't physically see what's going on. I think it's nice to have a hands-on uh, kind of example of, of. And you can see the the LEDs flicker on on the front of the box when packets. So I know packets are track, tracking between the two between the two ports when the LEDs are flashing. So it was like a. A fun project um, to kind of just get DPDK working on as small a box as possible. So
0: you have two of these boxes here. The the other one you have is maybe fifty percent bigger, may, maybe maybe twenty five percent bigger than than the one we just described. Yeah, that's, these that's the older version.
2: The older wow. version or, was uh, the larger version. The that's a dual core. Um, they, these guys are available um, from Netgate. The ones that I happen to use, um, they, and the Netgate do us do do did me a really big favor in this, in that they actually pre-installed DPDK on the SSDs inside in these boxes, so you can. Um, you can get them off their website uh, with dpdk pre-installed and it comes with a nice laser cut dpdk logo on the top of the on the top of the metal box so they're a nice a nice little demo kit for for somebody who wants to play with dpdk
0: yeah, they look really professional. So these are, uh, are, are these one gigabit ports or are these One ten- gigabit ports,
2: yeah. I mean, we, we look around for something that had ten gigabit, but it's about ten times the size. Oh, so. probably ten times the cost. As yeah, well. exactly. Uh, so we're going for something really small, so we're kind of limited to one gig. Until oh, they come, oh, sure. until they come up with ten gig ports that fit in the size of your, the palm of your hand. You oh, know. right. Uh, yeah. ten gig ports dissipate quite a bit of power, I yeah, think. Uh, yeah. Uh, so
0: th- those are pretty neat and uh, you you say you 've been using them for for education what kind of uh, what what do you mean what what kind of education uh, well
2: there's some of the guys in in San jose in in our uh, some of the guys that work with us on the training side of things, and um, they 've been using these um, to bring into students into classes and they might you know give a couple away for competitions or whatever, but they 'll you know give one to the students and let them you know plug them in. And, and 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 set them up and run DPDK uh, and and go through their training courses using these as as a tool for education.
0: So do they they work with with college students in networking classes? Yeah. Or?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what they typically do.
0: Oh, that sounds like fun.
1: Yeah, so in in general, the the real value I see in the DPDK is it's a known platform. So if you distribute it to people, you know what they have. If they say, "Look, guys, I'm running DPDK." on the mailing list and I'm looking for help, I have a DPDK in a box, you're, you already know what their problems could be. Chances are they're answered in an FAQ somewhere because that's something that's a common issue and somebody's bumped into. If they ask you what PCI address should I be binding it to, you know the device. So there's a lot of common ground there that if you're familiar with the hardware somewhere is using, it's actually a, a much easier way to communicate with them. And the fact that we're aware it supports DPDK, we know that it all works together, provides significant um, removal of stumbling blocks for someone ramping up on DPDK. Because they might say, hey, I'm trying to run this on my laptop. We don't know what laptop they have. And that might provide stumbling blocks if DPDK doesn't actually run on that laptop. So there's a lot of things like this where actually having the DPDK-enabled hardware just makes the the process of getting into dpdk and ramping up particularly for starting out users it just smooths that all over and provides a a cost-effective way of getting ramped up on dpdk a
2: known platform is a good thing because you know how much memory it has you know what ports it has you know so and you know how much disk space it has so you know someone unless they've uh, blown away the, the ssd and reinstalled a completely different operating system but you still know the hardware you're dealing with so and you know you have a pretty good idea whether it's capable or not
0: so how much does uh, one of these costs can people
2: order them or they can i think the NetGate website has them on 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 sale i think that the the smaller one is newer quad core i think it's around about 350 bucks um for that so i mean as an entry level machine it's it's it, it's pretty reasonable and
0: what what kind of cpu do you get in there you said uh, quad core
2: Quad-core Atom, quad Atom Z80. I can't actually remember the name.
1: I'd encourage all listeners to just go for a quick Google. Uh, all, just, all, all the specs are available. Yeah. It's,
2: yeah. Okay. It, uh, it, it looks like it would be fun to play with. Yeah, just Google DPDK in a box. Yeah, that, that'll that get it.
0: Yeah. And what's, what's the future of this project
2: Future of that is just more ports. Um, if I could get one with four ports, um, that'd be even better. Um, if I could find one with more cores, more, more queues on their NICs, um, just more and more or for cheaper, cheaper, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, you know, I want more for less money. always. Uh, the same um, as the future of everything in general. Yeah, tech exactly. Now. You know, consumers are very greedy, but yeah, that's, you know, so, but I mean, it's, 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 they're a nice little box, they're a nice little solution. I mean, you can, you can do a lot on your laptop and there's a lot of, a lot of single board computers out there, um, so even if it's you know any real single board computer, just look for the compatibility of the NICs, um, uh, whether it's compatible with GPK or not, um, and, and you're good to go. I mean, you could always run it on software, but it's not the same as having physical traffic passing between your NIC ports.
0: All right, so we've been talking uh, quite a while here now, so uh, what have I missed? Uh, what, what would you guys like to, to add that uh, we haven't already covered?
1: So uh, from from my previous experience, I mentioned that I was doing kind of Linux audio work and I got quite a lot of help and kind of training, I suppose, from that community. So from that point of view, I always have a lot of respect for how a community works and and the members of a community and how that interaction actually goes. If you show up as someone new to a community, how welcomed are you? Is it a welcoming environment? And I have to say that I really like the DPDK community from that point of view because there's a lot of technical expertise, a huge amount of technical expertise and uh, people coming to the mailing list are generally welcomed they are generally shown uh, the correct way to do it either by linking to FAQs or uh, otherwise indicating improvements to their patches it's a very i mean it's the deep end dpdk is a very low level project it is not a it's nothing you know here write a line of code it'll it'll do that 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 doesn't really fly in dpdk but the advantage of that is any line that you get merged is really like that's a a significant contribution. And as a community, I think the fact that the 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 community is so uh, vigilant and careful in what goes in and how that all works is a really powerful sense of community that we work together, that there's a lot of peer review. I know in the case of Deventive Library in particular, I'm really honored to work with the guys. They're brilliant coders. They're brilliant developers. And some of the the bugs that I would have sent up in a patch set get caught. And they say, hey, no, you missed this. You missed that. What in this really complicated, multi-threaded environment? Wouldn't that one little race condition exist? And you say, you know what? You're right. Yes. Thank you. So I, I really like that aspect of a community. And, and it's something that I always keep an eye on if I'm working in an open source environment. Is the community responsing or responding well to new input? and in the case of dpdk it's very technical so i mentioned earlier that there's technical merit behind all justifications pretty much and i would say that's also the case for new people uh, getting involved in the dpdk community but uh, don't let that put you off Uh, see it as an indication of if you achieve a a commit into dpdk it's really it's it's a significant achievement and yeah, something that I'd, i'd be proud
2: of and I think the the one thing I, I maybe would like to comment on is, is 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 the topic of usability. I mean, you touched on it there, Harry. Um, if we're always looking to improve usability, we're always looking to make the out-of-the-box experience better and better. I mean, it may not always be, um, you know, the easiest to, to get applications up and running. But if there's any suggestions that the listeners would have about, you know, improving documentation... I mean, and I'm not saying here that documentation isn't up to scratch. Do a patch, submit it into the mailing list, you know, as a patch, um, what you think would make it better, well, I found that this was wrong or I found that it left out this step or whatever. Do a patch on the documentation because the website is patchable just as easy as the as, as everything else. Um, so patch the documentation, submit an improvement, or ask for, I mean, Intel have developer's own um, articles published on on their website you know suggest a topic for a developer's own article I mean if you want something on Packet distributor or event dev or or whatever suggested we you know we 're missing we have a gap in our documentation suggest it come on to the user user mailing list or the dev mailing list and suggest improvements we 're looking at you know side projects all the time to help improve usability we're working on scripts that will get you know check down check out dpdk and and um, install it and get it running in a few clicks uh, that that stuff like that that we're looking at improving to improve usability for for people starting out in dpdk because we know it's it's low level we know it can be can be a heavy lift starting out um so we're always looking at ways and you know we welcome we always welcome suggestions on improving that experience
0: Well, it sounds like a healthy community. That's uh, uh, good to hear. Uh, So uh, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about DPDK?
1: So the initial contact point should probably be dpdk.org. So that's the project website. Um, There's a lot of information there. Uh, Click along the links at the top, you'll find there's a developers or dev uh, page, that's where all the developers go, there's a mailing list link, so if you're interested in reading the backlog of the mailing list, there's also an IRC channel if you're an IRC type person. Um, Generally the mailing list would be the core space for technical discussion. There's uh, various boards. So as part of the Linux Foundation move, there's a a governing board that do the more uh, governing-type decisions. There's also a technical steering committee that provide technical decisions to the community if the community can't actually make a resolution on the mailing list. So there's a lot of resources there. Um, If you're not sure which one to to use, which resource to to go with, I suggest post to the users at dpdk.org mailing list Uh, That's generally for people who are using DPDK and are interested in any part of DPDK, either getting involved, just how to install it, who to contact. All of these kind of questions are absolutely welcome at user's. At dpdk.org so that's the place to go i think
2: yeah, and there's no problem signing up to any of the mailing lists there's a dev at dpdk.org but the volume of that can be quite high at times especially coming close to release i mean you could be talking hundreds of emails a day um but the users as harry said the users is good to start announce is another one if you're just interested in when new releases are coming out sign up to the announce mailing list um, you can sign up to all three if you like, but you know you might be overwhelmed with volume. Um, so if you're a developer, typically you'd be in 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 the dev mailing list, and that will give you details on all the patches and discussions and all those patches and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on on on, on um, dbdk. org, uh, but again, I'd say it. Um, you know, we always welcome patches and and improvements to that to the documentation and, and the website.
0: All right. That sounds great. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Harry. Thanks, Dave, for uh, talking to me today.
2: No problem. You're welcome.
1: Uh, thanks for the, taking the time. Uh,
0: you're welcome. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by MyFreeMickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org. Or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.